Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It is a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to To The Lighthouse. But before we do, take some time to be present where you are right now. Start off by taking a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Gently close your eyes. Notice where your body is, how you're positioned, and how your body feels. If you notice any tension anywhere, try to allow that to soften or adjust your body if that helps. Now find a stillness and take your awareness to your environment. What sounds and smells are around you? What's the temperature like? Does your mind create any images to match these senses? Bringing your focus back to the sound of my voice, allow your mind now to drift back into the story as I recap our last episode. Previously, the dinner party dispersed and Mrs. Ramsey went upstairs to check on the children, but was irritated to find James and Cam were still awake in the nursery. They were bothered by a sheep's head skull on the wall that her brother had sent to them. What was he thinking? She covered it in her shawl, for James couldn't allow anyone to touch it. She whispered soothing words to Cam till she fell asleep and then saw to James. She exited quietly, telling the nurse Mildred to keep a better eye on them. When she came back down the stairs, the older children, including Prue, Minta and Paul, asked if they could go down to the beach to watch the waves. She happily consented and went to the parlour to find her husband. Mr. Ramsey was reading and clearly didn't want to be disturbed. Earlier, Mr. Tansley had made the accusation that nobody read Walter Scott anymore and Mr. Ramsey was proving a point. Mrs. Ramsey then sat down to her knitting and read a page or two of a nearby book, musing silently over some poetry in it. Mr. Ramsey allowed the story he was reading to move him in relation to his own plight of legacy and success. They began to converse, and as Mrs. Ramsey moved to the window, 
she could sense that her husband wanted her to tell him that she loved him. She rarely ever did this, but she knew that he felt her love, even without words. And that's where we pick up this evening, as the house falls silent for the night. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 2 Time Passes Chapter 1 Well, we must wait for the future to show, said Mr. Banks, coming in from the terrace. It's almost too dark to see, said Andrew, coming up from the beach. One can hardly tell which is the sea and which is the land, said Prue. Do we leave the light burning, said Lily as they took off their coats indoors. No, said Prue, not if everyone's in. Andrew? She called back. Just put the light out in the hall. One by one, the lamps were all extinguished, except that Mr. Carmichael, who liked to lie awake a little reading Virgil, kept his candle burning rather longer than the rest. Chapter 2 So with the lamps all put out, the moon sunk and a thin rain drumming on the roof, a downpouring of immense darkness began. Nothing, it seemed, could survive the flood, the profusion of darkness which, creeping in at keyholes and crevices, stole round the window blinds, came into bedrooms, swallowed up here a jug and a basin, There a bowl of red and yellow dahlias. There the sharp edges and firm bulk of a chest of drawers. Not only was furniture confounded, there was scarcely anything left of body or mind by which one could say, this is he or this is she. Sometimes a hand was raised as if to clutch something or ward off something or somebody groaned, or somebody laughed aloud as if sharing a joke with nothingness. Nothing stirred in the drawing room, or in the dining room, or on the staircase. Only through the rusty hinges and swollen, sea-moistened woodwork, certain airs, detached from the body of the wind, The house was ramshackle after all, crept round corners and ventured indoors. Almost one might imagine them as they entered the drawing room, questioning and wondering, toying with the flap of hanging wallpaper, asking, would it hang much longer? When would it fall? Then smoothly brushing the walls, They passed on, musingly as if asking the red and yellow roses on the wallpaper whether they would fade, and questioning 
gently, for there was time at their disposal. The torn letters in the waste paper basket, the flowers, the books, all of which were now open to them, and asking, were they allies? Were they enemies? How long would they endure? So some random light directing them with its pale footfall upon stair and mat from some uncovered star or wandering ship or the lighthouse even with its pale footfall upon stair and mat the little heirs mounted the staircase and nosed around bedroom doors but here surely they must cease Whatever else may perish and disappear, what lies here is steadfast. Here one might say to those sliding lights, those fumbling airs that breathe and bend over the bed itself, here you can neither touch nor destroy. Upon which, wearily, ghostily, as if they had feather-light fingers, and the light persistency of feathers, they would look once on the shut eyes and the loosely clasping fingers and fold their garments wearily and disappear. And so, nosing, rubbing, they went to the window on the staircase, to the servants' bedrooms, to the boxes in the attics, descending blanched the apples on the dining room table, fumbled the petals of the roses, tried the picture on the easel, brushed the mat, and blew a little sand along the floor. At length, desisting, all ceased together, gathered together, all sighed together, all together, gave off an aimless gust of lamentation to which some door in the kitchen replied, swung wide, admitted nothing, and slammed too. Here Mr. Carmichael, who was reading Virgil, blew out his candle. It was past midnight. Chapter 3 But what, after all, is one night? A short space, especially when the darkness dims so soon, and so soon a bird sings, a cock crows, or a faint green quickens like a turning leaf in the hollow of the wave. Night, however, succeeds to night. The winter holds a pack of them in store and deals them equally evenly with indefatigable fingers. They lengthen, they darken. Some of them hold aloft clear planets, plates of brightness. The autumn trees, ravaged as they are, take on the flash of tattered flags kindling in the gloom of cool cathedral caves where gold letters on marble pages describe death in battle and how bones, bleach, 
and burn far away in Indian sands. The autumn trees gleam in the yellow moonlight, in the light of harvest moons, the light which mellows the energy of labor and smooths the stubble and brings the wave lapping blue to the shore. It seemed now as if, touched by human penitence and all its toil, divine goodness had parted the curtain and displayed behind it, single, distinct, the hair erect, the wave falling, the boat rocking, which, did we deserve them, should be ours always. But alas, divine goodness, twitching the cord, draws the curtain. It does not please him. He covers his treasures in a drench of hail, and so breaks them, so confuses them, that it seems impossible that their calm should ever return, or that we should ever compose from their fragments a perfect whole, or read in the littered pieces the clear words of truth. For our penitence deserves a glimpse only, our toil, respite only. The nights now are full of wind and destruction. The trees plunge and bend, and their leaves fly helter-skelter until the lawn is plastered with them, and they lie packed in gutters and choke drain pipes and scatter damp paths. Also, the sea tosses itself and breaks itself, and should any sleeper, fancying that he might find on the beach an answer to his doubts, a sharer of his solitude, throw off his bedclothes and go down by himself to walk on the sand, no image with semblance of serving and divine promptitude comes readily to hand, bringing the night to order and making the world reflect the compass of the soul. The hand dwindles in his hand. The voice bellows in his ear. Almost it would appear that it is useless in such confusion to ask the knight those questions as to what and why and wherefore which tempt the sleeper from his bed to seek an answer. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling along the passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. Chapter 4 So with the house empty, and the doors locked, and the mattresses rolled round, those stray airs, advance guards of great armies, blustered in, brushed bare boards, nibbled and fanned, met nothing in bedroom or drawing room that wholly resisted them, but only hangings that flapped, wood 
that creaked. The bare legs of tables, saucepans and china already furred, tarnished, cracked. What people had shared and left. A pair of shoes, a shooting cap, some faded skirts and coats in wardrobes. Those alone kept the human shape and in the emptiness indicated how once they were filled and animated, how once hands were busy with hooks and buttons, how once the looking glass had held a face, had held a world hollowed out in which a figure turned, a hand flashed, the door opened. In came children, rushing and tumbling, and went out again. Now, day after day, light turned like a flower reflected in water, its sharp image on the wall opposite. Only the shadows of the trees, flourishing in the wind, made obeisance on the wall, and for a moment, darkened the pool in which light reflected itself, or birds flying made a soft spot flutter slowly across the bedroom floor. So, loveliness reigned, and stillness, and together made the shape of loveliness itself, a form from which life had parted, solitary, like a pool at evening, far distant, seen from a train window, vanishing so quickly that the pool, pale in the evening, is scarcely robbed of its solitude, though once seen. Loveliness and stillness clasped hands in the bedroom, and among the shrouded jugs and sheeted chairs, even the prying of the wind and the soft nose of the clammy sea airs, rubbing, snuffling, iterating and reiterating their questions. Will you fade? Will you perish? Scarcely disturbed the peace, the indifference, the air of pure integrity, as if the question they asked scarcely needed that they should answer, we remain. Nothing, it seemed, could break that image, corrupt that innocence, or disturb the swaying mantle of silence which, week after week, in the empty room, wove into itself the falling cries of birds, ships, hooting, the drone and hum of the fields, a dog's bark, a man's shout, and folded them round the house in silence. Once only a board sprang on the landing, once in the middle of the night with a roar, with a rupture, as after centuries of quiescence a rock rends itself from the mountain and hurtles, crashing into the valley. One fold of the shawl loosened and swung to and fro. Then again, peace descended, 
and the shadow wavered. Light bent to its own image in adoration on the bedroom wall, and Mrs. McNabb, tearing the veil of silence with hands that had stood in the washtub, grinding it with boots that had crunched the shingle, came as directed to open all windows and dust the bedrooms. Chapter 5 As she lurched, for she rolled like a ship at sea, and leered, for her eyes fell on nothing directly, but with a sidelong glance that deprecated the scorn and anger of the world, she was witless, she knew it. As she clutched the banisters and hauled herself upstairs, and rolling from room to room, she sang, rubbing the glass of the long-looking glass and leering sideways at her swinging figure, a sound issued from her lips. Something that had been gay twenty years before, on the stage perhaps, had been hummed and danced to. But now, coming from the toothless, bonneted, caretaking woman, was robbed of meaning was like the voice of witlessness, humour, persistency itself, trodden down but springing up again, so that as she lurched, dusting, wiping, she seemed to say how it was one long sorrow and trouble, how it was getting up and going to bed again, bringing things out and putting them away again. It was not easy or snug this world she had known for close on seventy years. Bowed down she was with weariness. How long, she asked, creaking and groaning on her knees under the bed, dusting the boards. How long shall it endure? But hobbled to her feet again, pulling herself up and again with her sidelong leer, which slipped and turned aside even from her own face and her own sorrows, stood and gaped in the glass, aimlessly smiling, and began again the old amble and hobble, taking up mats, putting down china, looking sideways in the glass as if, after all, she had her consolations, as if indeed there were twined about her dirge some incorrigible hope. Visions of joy there must have been at the wash tub, say with her children, yet two had been baseborn and one had deserted her. At the public house, drinking, turning over scraps in her drawers. Some cleavage of the dark there must have been, some channel in the depths of obscurity through which light enough issued to twist her face, grinning in the glass, and make her, turning to her job again, mumble out the old music hall song. The mystic, the visionary, walking the beach on a fine night, stirring a puddle, looking at a stone, 
asking themselves, what am I? What is this? Had suddenly an answer vouchsafed them. They could not say what it was, so that they were warm in the frost and had comfort in the desert. But Mrs. McNabb continued to drink and gossip as before. Chapter 6 The spring without a leaf to toss, bare and bright, scornful in her purity, was laid out on fields wide-eyed and watchful and entirely careless of what was done or thought by the beholders. Prue Ramsey, leaning on her father's arm, was given in marriage. What people said could have been more fitting and they added how beautiful she looked. As summer neared, as the evenings lengthened, there came to the wakeful, the hopeful, walking the beach, stirring the pool, imaginations of the strangest kind. A flesh turned to atoms which drove before the wind, of stars flashing in their hearts, of cliff, sea, cloud and sky brought purposely together to assemble outwardly the scattered parts of the vision within. In those mirrors, the minds of men, in those pools of uneasy water in which clouds forever turn and shadows form, dreams persisted, and it was impossible to resist the strange intimation which every gull, flower, tree, man and woman, and the white earth itself seemed to declare, but if questioned at once to withdraw, that good triumphs, happiness prevails, order rules, or to resist the extraordinary stimulus to range hither and thither in search of some absolute good some crystal of intensity, remote from the known pleasures and familiar virtues, something alien to the processes of domestic life, single, hard, bright, like a diamond in the sand, which would render the possessor secure. Moreover, softened and acquiescent, the spring with her bees humming and gnats dancing, threw her cloak about her, veiled her eyes, averted her head, and among passing shadows and flights of small rain seemed to have taken upon her a knowledge of the sorrows of mankind. Prue Ramsey died that summer in some illness connected with childbirth, which was indeed a tragedy, people said. Everything they said had promised so well. And now, in the heat of summer, the wind sent its spies about the house again. Flies wove a web in the sunny rooms. Weeds that had grown so close to the glass in the night tapped methodically at the window pane. When darkness fell, the stroke of the lighthouse which had laid itself with such authority upon the carpet 
in the darkness, tracing its patterns, came now into the softer light of spring, mixed with the moonlight, gliding gently as if it laid its caress and lingered stealthily and looked and came lovingly again. But in the very lull of this loving caress, as the long stroke leant upon the bed, the rock was rent asunder, another fold of the shawl loosened. There it hung and swayed. Through the short summer nights and the long summer days, when the empty rooms seemed to murmur with the echoes of the fields and the hum of flies, the long streamer waved gently, swayed aimlessly, while the sun so stripped and barred the rooms and filled them with yellow haze that Mrs. McNabb, when she broke in and lurched about, dusting, sweeping, looked like a tropical fish oaring its way through sun-lanced waters. But slumber and sleep, though it might, there came later in the summer, ominous sounds like the measured blows of hammers dulled on felt, which, with their repeated shocks, still further loosened the shawl and cracked the teacups. Now and again some glass tinkled in the cupboard, as if a giant voice had shrieked so loud in its agony that tumblers stood inside a cupboard vibrated too. Then again silence fell, and then, night after night, and sometimes in plain midday, when the roses were bright and light turned on the wall its shape clearly, there seemed to drop into this silence, this indifference, this integrity, the thud of something falling. A shell exploded. Twenty or thirty young men were blown up in France. Among them, Andrew Ramsey, whose death, mercifully, was instantaneous. At that season, those who had gone down to pace the beach and ask of the sea and sky what message they reported or what vision they affirmed had to consider among the usual tokens of divine bounty, the sunset on the sea, the pallor of dawn, the moon rising, fishing boats against the moon and children making mud pies or pelting each other with handfuls of grass, something out of harmony with this jocundity and this serenity. There was the silent apparition of an ashen-coloured ship, for instance, come, gone. There was a purplish stain upon the bland surface of the sea, as if something had boiled and bled invisibly beneath. This intrusion into a scene calculated to stir the most sublime reflections and lead to the most comfortable conclusions stayed their pacing. It was difficult blandly to overlook them, 
to abolish their significance in the landscape, to continue as one walked by the sea, to marvel how beauty outside mirrored beauty within. Did nature supplement what man advanced? Did she complete what he began? With equal complacence, she saw his misery, his meanness, and his torture. That dream of sharing, completing, of finding in solitude on the beach an answer was then but a reflection in the mirror, and the mirror itself was but the surface glassiness which forms in quiescence when the nobler powers seep beneath. Impatient, despairing, yet loath to go, for beauty offers her laws, has her consolations. To pace the beach was impossible. Contemplation was unendurable. The mirror was broken. Mr. Carmichael brought out a volume of poems that spring, which had an unexpected success. The war, people said, had revived their interest in poetry. Chapter 7 Night after night, summer and winter, the torment of storms, the arrow-like stillness of fine, had there been anyone to listen to from the upper rooms of the empty house, only gigantic chaos streaked with lightning, could have been heard tumbling and tossing as the winds and waves disported themselves like the amorphous bulks of leviathans whose brows are pierced by no light of reason and, mounted on top of another, had lunged and plunged in the darkness all the daylight for night and day. Month and year ran shapelessly together in idiot games until it seemed as if the universe were battling and tumbling in brute confusion and wanton lust aimlessly by itself. In the spring, the garden urns, casually filled with wind-blown plants, were as gay as ever. Violets came and daffodils the stillness and the brightness of the day were as strange as the chaos and tumult of the night, with the trees standing there and the flowers standing there, looking before them, looking up, yet beholding nothing, eyeless and so terrible. Chapter 8 Thinking no harm, for the family would not come, never again, some said. The house would be sold at Michaelmas, perhaps. Mrs. McNabb stooped and picked a bunch of flowers to take home with her. She laid them on the table while she dusted. She was fond of flowers. It was a pity to let them waste. Suppose the house were sold... She stood arms akimbo in front of the looking glass. It would want saying to, it would. 
There it had stood all these years without a soul in it. The books and things were mouldy, for what with the war and help being hard to get, the house had not been cleaned as she could have wished. It was beyond one person's strength to get it straight now. She was too old. Her legs pained her. All those books needed to be laid out on the grass in the sun. There was plaster fallen in the hall. The rain pipe had blocked over the study window and let the water in. The carpet was ruined quite. But people should come themselves. They should have sent somebody down to see. For there were clothes in the cupboards. They had left clothes in all the bedrooms. What was she to do with them? They had the moth in them, Mrs. Ramsay's things. Poor lady. She would never want them again. She was dead, they said, years ago in London. There was the old grey cloak she wore gardening. Mrs. McNabb fingered it. She could see her as she came up the drive with the washing, stooping over her flowers. The garden was a pitiful sight now, all run to riot, and rabbits scuttling at you out of the beds. She could see her with one of the children by her in that grey cloak. There were boots and shoes, and a brush and comb left on the dressing table, for all the world as if she had expected to come back tomorrow. She died very sudden at the end, they said. And once they had been coming, it had to put off coming what with the war and travel being so difficult these days. They had never come all these years, just sent her money, but never wrote, never came, and expected to find things as they had left them. Oh dear. While the dressing table drawers were full of things, she pulled them open. Handkerchiefs, bits of ribbon. Yes, she could see Mrs. Ramsay as she came up the drive with the washing. Good evening, Mrs. McNabb, she would say. She had a pleasant way with her. The girls all liked her. But dear, many things had changed since then. She shut the drawer. Many families had lost their dearest. So she was dead, and Mr. Andrew killed, and Miss Prue dead too, they said, with her first baby. But everyone had lost someone these years. Prices had gone up, shamefully, and didn't come down again, neither. She could well remember her in her grey cloak. Good evening, Mrs. McNabb, she said, and told Cook to keep a plate of milk soup for her. Quite thought she wanted it, carrying that heavy basket all the way up from town. She could see her now, stooping over her flowers, and faint and flickering like a yellow beam or the circle at the end of a telescope. A lady in a grey cloak, stooping over her flowers, went, wandering over the bedroom wall, up the dressing table, across the washstand, as Mrs. McNabb hobbled and ambled, dusting, straightening. And Cook's name now, Mildred? 
Marion? Some name like that. She'd forgotten. She did forget things. Fiery, like all red-haired women. Many a laugh they had. She was always welcome in the kitchen. She made them laugh, she did. Things were better then than now. She sighed. There was too much work for one woman. She wagged her head this side and that. This had been the nursery. Why it was all damp in here. The plaster was falling. Whatever did they want to hang a beast's skull there? Gone mouldy too. And rats in all the attics. The rain came in, but they never sent. Never came. Some of the locks had gone, so the doors banged. She didn't like to be up here at dusk alone, neither. It's too much for one woman. Too much, too much. She creaked. She moaned. She banged the door. She turned the key in the lock and left the house alone. Shut up. Locked. Chapter 9 The house was left. The house was deserted. It was left like a shell on a sandhill to fill with dry salt grains now that the life had left it. The long night seemed to have set in. The trifling airs, nibbling, clammy breaths, fumbling, seemed to have triumphed. The saucepan had rusted and the mat decayed. Toads had nosed their way in. Idly, aimlessly, the swaying shawl swung to and fro. A thistle thrust itself between the tiles in the larder, the swallows nested in the drawing room. The floor was strewn with straw. The plaster fell in shovelfuls. Rafters were laid bare. Rats carried off this and that to gnaw behind the wainscots. Tortoise-shell butterflies burst from the chrysalis and pattered their life out onto the window pane. Poppies sewed themselves among the dahlias. The lawn waved with long grass. Giant artichokes towered among roses. A fringed carnation flowered among the cabbages, while the gentle tapping of a weed at the window had become, on winter's nights, a drumming from sturdy trees and thorned briars, which made the whole room green in summer. What power could now prevent the fertility, the insensibility of nature? Mrs. McNabb's dream of a lady, of a child, a plate of milk soup. It had wavered over the walls like a spot of sunlight and vanished. She had locked the door. She'd gone. It was beyond the strength of one woman, she said. They never sent. They never wrote. There were things up there rotting in the drawers. It was a shame to leave them so, she said. 
the place was gone to rack and ruin. Only the lighthouse beam entered the rooms for a moment, sent its sudden stare over bed and wall in the darkness of winter, looked with equanimity at the thistle and the swallow, the rat and the straw. Nothing now withstood them, nothing said no to them. Let the wind blow. Let the poppy seed itself and the carnation mate with the cabbage. Let the swallow build in the drawing room and the thistle thrust against the tiles and the butterfly sun itself on the faded chintz of the armchairs. Let the broken glass and the china lie out on the lawn and be tangled over with grass and wild berries. For now had come that moment, that hesitation, when dawn trembles and night pauses, when if a feather alight in the scale will be weighed down, one feather and the house, sinking, falling, would have turned and pitched downwards to the depths of darkness. In the ruined room, picnickers would have lit their kettles, Lovers sought shelter there, lying on the bare boards, and the shepherd stored his dinner on the bricks, and the tramp slept with his coat around him to ward off the cold. Then the roof would have fallen, briars and hemlocks would have blotted out path, step and window, would have grown unequally but lustily over the mound until some trespasser losing his way, could have told only by a red-hot poker among the nettles, or a scrap of china in their hemlock. Here, once, someone had lived. There had been a house. If the feather had fallen, it had tipped the scale downwards. The whole house would have plunged into the depths to lie upon the sands of oblivion. There was a force working, something not highly conscious, something that leered, something that lurched, something not inspired to go about its work with dignified ritual or solemn chanting. Mrs. McNabb groaned, Mrs. Bast creaked. They were old, they were stiff, their legs ached. They came with their brooms and pails at last. They got to work. All of a sudden, would Mrs. McNabb see that the house was ready? One of the young ladies wrote, would she get this done? Would she get that done, all in a hurry? They might be coming for the summer. Had left everything to the last. Expected to find things as they had left them. Slowly and painfully, with broom and pail, mopping and scouring, Mrs. McNabb, Mrs. Bast, stayed the corruption and the rot, rescued from the pool of time that was fast closing over them now, a basin, now a cupboard, fetched up from oblivion all the Waverley novels and a tea set one morning in the afternoon, 
restored to sun and air a brass fender and a set of steel fire irons. George, Mrs. Bast's son, caught the rats and cut the grass. They had the builders, attended with the creaking of hinges and the screeching of bolts, the slamming and banging of damp, swollen woodwork. Some rusty, laborious birth seemed to be taking place as the women, stooping, rising, groaning, singing, slapped and slammed upstairs, now down in the cellars. Oh, they said, the work. They drank their tea in the bedroom sometimes or in the study, breaking off work at midday with the smudge on their faces and their old hands clasped and cramped with the broom handles. Flopped on chairs, they contemplated now the magnificent conquest over taps and bath, now the more arduous, more partial triumph over long rows of books, black as ravens once, now white-stained, breeding pale mushrooms and secreting furtive spiders. Once more, as she felt the tea warm in her, a telescope fitted itself to Mrs. McNabb's eyes, and in a ring of light, she saw the old gentleman, lean as a rake, wagging his head as she came up with the washing, talking to himself, she supposed, on the lawn. He never noticed her. Some said he was dead. Some said she was dead. Which was it? Mrs. Bast didn't know for certain either. The young gentleman was dead, that she was sure. She had read his name in the papers. There was the cook now. Mildred, Marion, some such name as that. A red-headed woman, quick-tempered like all her sort, but kind too, if you knew the way with her. Many a laugh they had had together. She saved a plate of soup for Maggie, a bite of ham sometimes, whatever was over. They lived well in those days. They had everything they wanted. Glibly, jovially, with the tea hot in her, she unwound her ball of memories, sitting in the wicker armchair by the nursery fender. There was always plenty doing. People in the house... Twenty staying sometimes, and washing up till long past midnight. Mrs. Bast, she had never known them, had lived in Glasgow at that time. Wondered, putting her cup down, whatever they hung that beast's skull there for. Shot in foreign parts, no doubt. Well, it might well be, said Mrs. McNabb wantoning on with her memories. They had friends in eastern countries, gentlemen staying there, ladies in evening dress. She had seen them once through the dining room door, all sitting at dinner. Twenty, she dared say, all in their jewellery. And she asked to help stay, help wash up. Might be till after midnight. Ah, said Mrs. Bast, they'd find it changed. She leant out of the window. 
she watched her son, George, scything the grass. They might well ask what had been done to it, seeing how old Kennedy was supposed to have charge of it, and then his leg got so bad after he fell from the cart, and perhaps then no one for a year, or the better part of one, and then Davy MacDonald, and seeds might be sent, but who should say if they were ever planted? They'd find it changed. She watched her son scything. He was a great one for work. One of those quiet ones. Well, they must be getting along with the cupboards, she supposed. They hauled themselves up. At last, after days of labour within, of cutting and digging without, dusters were flicked from the windows. The windows were shut to keys were turned all over the house. The front door was banged. It was finished. And now, as if the cleaning and scrubbing and the scything and the mowing had drowned it, there rose that half-heard melody, that intermittent music which the ear half catches but lets fall. A bark, a bleat, irregular, Intermittent, yet somehow related. The hum of an insect. The tremor of cut grass. Discordant, yet somehow belonging. The jar of a door beetle. The squeak of a wheel. Loud, low, but mysteriously related. Which the ear strains to bring together and is always on the verge of harmonizing. But they are never quite heard never fully harmonized. And at last in the evening, one after another, the sounds die out and the harmony falters and silence falls. With the sunset, sharpness was lost and like mist rising, quiet rose. Quiet spread. The wind settled. Loosely, the world shook itself down to sleep, darkly here without a light to it, save what came green suffused through leaves or pale on the white flowers in the bed by the window. Lily Briscoe had her bag carried up to the house late one evening in September. Mr. Carmichael came by the same train. Chapter 10 Then indeed, peace had come. Messages of peace breathed from the sea to the shore, never to break its sleep any more, to lull it rather more deeply to rest. And whatever the dreamers dreamt, holily dreamt wisely to confirm, what else was it murmuring as Lily Briscoe laid her head on the pillow in the clean, still room and heard the sea? Through the open window, the voice of the beauty of the world came murmuring, too softly to hear exactly what it said. But what mattered if the meaning were plain? Entreating the sleepers, the house was full again. Mrs. Beckwith was staying there, also Mr. Carmichael. If they would not actually come down to the beach itself, at least to lift the blind and look out, 
They would see then the night flowing down in purple, its head crowned, its scepter jeweled, and how in his eyes a child might look. And if they still faltered, Lily was tired out with travelling and slept almost at once, but Mr. Carmichael read a book by candlelight. If they still said no, that it was vapour, this splendour of his, and the dew had more power than he, and they preferred sleeping gently then without complaint or argument, the voice would sing its song. Gently the waves would break, Lily heard them in her sleep. Tenderly the light fell, it seemed to come through her eyelids. And it all looked, Mr. Carmichael thought, shutting his book, falling asleep, much as it used to look. Indeed, the voice might resume as the curtains of dark wrapped themselves over the house over Mrs. Beckwith, Mr. Carmichael, and Lily Briscoe, so that they lay with several folds of blackness on their eyes. Why not accept this, be content with this, acquiesce and resign? The sigh of all the seas breaking in measure round the isles soothed them. The night wrapped them. Nothing broke their sleep until the birds beginning and the dawn weaving their thin voices into its whiteness, a cart grinding, a dog somewhere barking. The sun lifted the curtains, broke the veil on their eyes, and Lily Briscoe stirring in her sleep. She clutched at her blankets as a faller clutches at the turf on the edge of a cliff. Her eyes opened wide. Here she was again, she thought, sitting bowled upright in bed, awake. 